You're listening to a University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. In this episode, An Irish Mode, The Literary Writings and Legacy of Thomas McDonough, a conversation between UCD professors Margaret Kelleher and Daniel Clark. The event was part of the 2016 UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures and took place at the National Library of Ireland on the 9th of June. It featured selected readings from McDonough's works, performed by the UCD Ad Astra Drama Scholars. The event was introduced by UCD's Dr Jane Grogan. Thanks for coming out for, uh, for tonight's talk. A conversation between Professor Margaret Kelleher and Professor Danielle Clark of the UCD School of English Drama and Film on the question of an Irish mode, the literary writings and legacy of Thomas McDonough. And we're particularly pleased to be joined tonight by the UCD Ad Astra Scholars, um, who ably directed, of course, by Kelly Hughes, um, who are going to be working with our speakers tonight um, and, and I suppose hopefully bringing to life some of McDonough's writings. My name is Jane Grogan. I'm also from the School of English Drama and Film, so forgive us for the slightly in-house flavour, um, but we're very proud uh, and we're also particularly proud um, of, our, of our students. As you know, of course, 2016 marks the centenary of the 1916 Rising. But it's also the quarter centenary, the 400th year anniversary of the death of Shakespeare. Um, and tonight these actors and academics are going to spotlight this strange and really provocative coincidence um, by exploring the early modern interests of one of the leaders of the 1916 Rising, writer, scholar and former UCD lecturer in English, Thomas Macdonough. So it's a very great pleasure, I should say, to be able to meet here for this event at the National Library of Ireland, and particularly appropriate because, of course, it's here at the National Library that McDonough's papers are held. Um, and if you haven't already looked, they've all been digitised, so they're um, fully accessible um, uh, online, and I urge you to have a look. There's a certain amount, of course, in the foyer that you've seen already. Um, I wanted to thank particularly at the National Library, um, Catherine McSharry and Breed O'Sullivan, who have supported us in, in, in bringing all of this together uh, here in this room. So tonight's event is the last, uh, the fourth and last of the 2016 series of the UCD Abbey Theatre Shakespeare Lectures, um, which is an annual public lecture series that brings together academics and theatre practitioners. And in a way, the series began as a way of trying to engage the very broad interest in Shakespeare in Irish society, a broad interest that isn't often sort of brought together um, and, and synthesised and kind of considered together. Um, but in a funny way, as the series continued, um, it, it ended up sort of taking as its key focus the question more of, of how and when and why Shakespeare has mattered in Ireland and, and mattered in a very real way. So earlier in this year's series, we visited the Pierce Museum uh, in Rathfarnham to hear about Pierce's obsession, and I think that's the word, um, with fine editions of Shakespeare, but also of the really strange place that Shakespeare, or perhaps unexpected is a better word, the unexpected place that Shakespeare has in the Irish revolutionary imagination, even before Pierce. So tonight, I think even more powerfully, we're going to think about that question about why um, and how Shakespeare matters in Ireland by focusing in uh, on Thomas Macdonough, um, whose scholarly research centred on Shakespeare, Campion and his early modern contemporaries. But you haven't come here for me, so let me introduce our speakers um, and then I will, uh, we will pass over into the, uh, the events of the evening. So Professor Margaret Kelleher here on my left um, is Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature in UCD. Besides her scholarly leadership in editorial works such as the two-volume Cambridge History of Irish Literature, um, Margaret has published widely in the fields of Irish literary and cultural history, um, and particularly on gender in 19th century Ireland um, and on narratives of the Irish famine. And I'm sure you'll have come across her work in various ways uh, um, over the years. 
Professor Danielle Clark. Um, beside her is Professor of English Renaissance Language and Literature at UCD. Um, she's also head of the School of English Drama and Film. Um, and she too has published widely uh, and with um, uh, great eminence on the work of early modern women writers in particular, um, on questions of gender and sexuality in early modern literature, but also um, in diverse fields like uh, rhetoric and translation, and most recently on the um, questions of life writing. In the corner, we have our Ad Astra scholars, um, and I'd like to introduce them to you now before, before the events of the beginning, evening begin. So Tiernan Fallon Verbruggen, Evan Lynch, and Rosa Bowden are all UCD Ad Astra performing arts scholars. So Evan is the newest scholar and has just finished first year studying English and drama. Tiernan has been an Ad Astra scholar for four years and is about to go into his final year of medicine. And Rosa is an Ad Astra alumni who studied English and drama and was the auditor of the award-winning UCD Dramsoc last year. Um, and their work today has been uh, directed by uh, the, the um, inimitable Kelly Hughes. We're very lucky to have her. And she's sitting here being modest. Um, anyway, I'd ask you, just before we start, perhaps we could, you could join me in welcoming today's speakers. I'd um, just like to say thank you to Jane for the introduction and I would like to just reiterate her thanks to the Ad Astra scholars. Um, I suspect that uh, McDonough would rather approve of them, actually. Um, it's entirely fitting, as Jane has already outlined, that we conclude this series with the figure of McDonough, um, with all the pieces of 2016 coming together, the 1916 commemorations, UCD's particular role in those commemorations um, and the triumphant celebration of the centenary. And again, I would point particularly uh, to signatories uh, in relation to that, but also uh, to the role of the UCD Abbey Shakespeare series in highlighting the rich and complex connections between the Easter Rising and the tercentenary of Shakespeare's death, i.e. 1916. Um, Shakespeare died rather conveniently for later nationalist appropriations uh, on St George's Day, uh, 1616. Whether or not that's true, I'm not quite sure. The Rising, of course, starts on the following day, uh, 300 years later. So you can see immediately how this conjunction uh, comes into play. <laughs> Previous speakers in this series, um, Andrew Murphy last year uh, has done extensive work on this area and Gordon McMullen this year um, who's recently uh, edited or reissued the book of commemorations that was prepared uh, in, in, in London I think with contributions from all over the empire uh, to which of course Douglas Hyde uh, contributes uh, a slightly off-key uh, Gaelic poem. Um, so all of these things kind of come together quite nicely I think in terms of thinking about those contextually links uh, between Shakespeare and the rising, um, but also to note the very strange paradoxes and, and ironies that this, uh, this connection often gives rise to. Um, and one thinks, obviously, of the, the rebels in Jacob's Biscuit Factory uh, quoting large chunks of Julius Caesar, and of course Thomas MacDonald was the commander uh, there. So the connection, kind of, the, the, the circles kind of keep linking together in interesting ways. And again, Jane has mentioned this, but the abiding love of Shakespeare, very evident in Pierce, O'Casey and others, um, all interested in Shakespeare for a variety of reasons. And perhaps what's interesting is that, that it's a conjunction now in need of explanation. Um, I suspect that for uh, these figures, this conjunction didn't require explanation. Um, and as the discussion will suggest, Shakespeare to Macdonough was perhaps the supreme example of vernacular literary greatness. And that's interesting for other reasons in relation to interest that Margaret will talk about, but of proximity to the demotic, to the language of the people. 
Shakespeare is a touchstone, I think, a way of illuminating other ideas, cultures and languages within the profoundly comparative frame that shaped his thought. Um, if you browse through the archive, Madonna's handwriting looks very nice and it's actually quite difficult to decipher and it's not always immediately obvious when you, just take, when you kind of glance upon uh, a piece of documentation whether he's writing in English, French, Irish or Latin uh, and he uses them quite often interchangeably, uh, in, certainly in his, his, in his, in his scholarship note-taking. Um, he, he doesn't write in Irish that often, actually, uh, in, in the manuscript or in the archive, but often in Latin, often in French and in English. Um, so, and I think it also shapes that of uh, the sensibility, if you like, of his fellow teachers and radicals in what was then the Royal and then the National University. And this circle of people, um, connected by intellectual interest and political sympathy, for the most part, not always, um, and interestingly, not connected by common uh, social backgrounds, um, in fact, um, or class solidarity. But these were the, these connections were absolutely formative and foundational in nurturing the ideas that led to the rising. And that group of people, as I've kind of read more about them, appeal to me greatly. The connections between Mary Colum, Porrick Colum, uh, McDonough. Um, and others, uh, Robert Donovan, uh, and so on and so forth. You can you can actually start to trace uh, a clear sort of genealogical line, as it were, a kind of intellectual genealogy that goes back to Arnold and to Newman himself. And I think that's a very interesting trajectory about which not an awful lot has been uh, discussed or written, as far as I'm aware. They didn't have a single view, of course, on what should happen, and many of them later distanced themselves from political violence and from the events of the rising, uh, Mary Collum most notably. Um, but they, these, these were a group of friends, uh, lovers, uh, colleagues. They debated, they discussed. Uh, they were a very tight-knit circle. Um, and I think you know, that distancing possibly also has something to do with the trauma that was visited on that group of people as a consequence. So my interest in McDonough is driven really by two things. Um, I'm, I'm an early modernist. Uh, I work on Renaissance literature. Um, but it's driven primarily, actually, by my interest in UCD and in the, the multiple iterations of the subject that I now teach, um, and specifically in the early years of what then became, ultimately, um, I've been in UCD quite a long time. I have a rather longer institutional memory at this point than most other people do. Um, I mean, and the, the UCD I first arrived at actually preserved some of the uh, key interests uh, of, of this circle of people. There was a kind of direct line there, and I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Um, so, as I say, we've gone through many iterations and uh, I see McDonough as kind of crucial to the progression of that, um, as crucial uh, to, to the kind of the formation, I suppose, of the teaching of English in UCD as Thomas Arnold had been uh, in the 1860s and then again later in the last decade of the century. There are, perhaps surprisingly, um, parallels between early UCD and modern UCD, and they're striking. They're as striking as the differences are revealing. Uh, a very small staff. Um, students were taught by lecturers and pref professors with very wide-ranging and distinctly interdisciplinary interests. The curriculum, as far as I've been able to reconstruct it, seems to me to be very strongly Edwardian. Uh, with a strong um, emphasis on the inherited traditions in multiple languages, um, particularly 
uh, classical, uh, but also increasingly Irish, and that's something that Margaret will pick up later on. But also very strongly formal and linguistic in character. Um, when McDonough applies for the chair in Trinity, one of the things that he cites in his application is that he has recently taught comparative linguistics, um, which I think is again a, a kind of a, a, an interesting notion of the kind of holistic approach, uh, the, the interface between language and literature that all of these people were interested in. So um, ranging across the classics, European vernaculars, and most strikingly of all, I think, um, the deep interest in the Irish literary tradition in both languages, uh, placing that in its larger context, including its national and nationalist context. So I think there's something very interesting about Macdonald. There's, again, in this same um, printed citation uh, for his application to the chair in Trinity, which he didn't get, by the way, um, Edward Dowden, the famous Shakespearean uh, scholar, um, writes a little testimonial to him, which is is sort of damning in its praise because it says, oh, it's so delightful to see proper scholarship coming out of the sister institution, um, which completely ignores the fact that there had been quantities of extremely significant scholarship coming out of UCD in the 1880s, 1890s, particularly in the areas of the Irish language and uh, particularly in Irish archaeology. Um, so it's a very interesting kind of uh, snapshot of a particular moment of tension, I think. Um, so, as I say, um, very striking, if you look at this early stuff, is the commitment to what we now call Hiberno-English. And, of course, uh, at the time that, the, the, that McDonough and others, um, both in the Irish department and in the English department, are interested in this field, this is a highly innovative subfield uh, in, 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 in the 1900s. Um, lecturers were often also peripatetic, many of you will recognise this, um, employed on a short-term basis, as McDonough was. Um, there was little sense of academia as a profession per se. Uh, Robert Donovan, for example, the professor of English um, to whom McDonough's MA thesis and subsequent book is dedicated, um, was also a widely published journalist um, and apparently uh, lost out to Tom Kettle for the chair of economics um, and then obviously subsequently settled for the chair of English instead. The, the teachers of the NUI um, were deeply involved in national life at all levels and in national debates not merely reacting to them, I think, but also uh, initiating them. And this and more will be discussed in more detail in what follows. Um, I thought it might be useful before heading into the extracts to give a very brief overview of, of McDonough's life prior to the rising. Um, I think possibly um, his, his life prior to this point is less familiar to him, to, to people than his subsequent, uh, his subsequent involvement. Um, it has to be said, if you're kind of picking through the archive trying to get a sense of him, um, the one thing that really does not strike you is that McDonough is ideally suited for military command. Uh, his character seems to me to be quite different uh, to that. So he was born in uh, 1878 in Croft Jordan in Tipperary. His parents were both national school teachers. Um, his mother was a Catholic convert. Uh, she'd been a Unitarian uh, prior to that. Uh, he was educated at Rockwell College and was intending to join the priesthood. He taught English, French and Latin literature there. He subsequently abandoned his vocation for a life as a teacher and a writer. And in the early 1900s, he attended a Gaelic League meeting, describing it at, as, quote, a baptism in nationalism. He spent time on Inishman, becoming a fluent speaker and writer of Irish. And he subsequently taught at St. Coleman's College in Fomoy in County Cork, gradually drifting away from the language movement. And again, Margaret will talk about the significance of that a little later. 
He then moved to Dublin, where he taught language and literature at St. Enders College. And during this time, he also studied part-time for a BA in UCD in English, French and Irish. Um, from 1914, and this is significant for his theatrical interests, um, he also managed the Irish Theatre in Hardwick Street. He graduated with an MA in 1911, his thesis being published in 1913 as Thomas Campion and the Art of English Poetry, and he was then assistant lecturer in English in UCD from 1911 to his death in 1916. And during this period, he twice applied for professorships, one in Trinity and one in Galway. Um, from, from the material in the archive, um, there's a lot of interesting material there, flashcards for lectures, um, uh, draft exam questions, commentaries on students uh, and so on, all things we still do, um, interestingly enough. Um, but he was very clearly uh, an extremely committed teacher. Um, the historian of UCD, Donald McCarthy, quotes a student who recorded his lectures as, quote, I love this quote, never relevant and invariably interesting. And I fear, I fear that in the modern university you could reverse those adjectives sometimes. Um, do you want to chip in here? And then we'll move into introducing the passages. Thanks, Danielle. As built, this is a dialogue and, and inevitably and a conversation. So we're bringing our, I think, differing but hopefully complementary interests to this. Uh, and Danielle has talked already so eloquently about the many things that interest her uh, about MacDonough. My interest is very much in, in this wonderful volume, uh, Literature in Ireland, subtitled Studies Irish and Anglo-Irish. And in fact, when we come to look at that volume in more detail later, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, about the subtitle, the somewhat, I think, awkward but, but deliberately chosen subtitle, which of course was posthumously published uh, just about a, a month after the Easter Rising. That alone has given the book quite a bit of mystique. I mean, there's a rumour that McDonough was checking the proofs in, in Jacob's factory, which I think uh, is certainly one to be held on with or held on to. And yet, and while that might be a, an anecdote, it clearly shows um, how his thinking, you know, the thinking that underlines, uh, underlies this volume uh, was also crucial to his polit political activity. But the other side of that, of course, is that the political activity really, I think, came um, for many decades to eclipse uh, the significance uh, of this work. It's a book we look at uh, in the MA in Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama. Uh, I'm delighted that the audience includes this evening current students from that programme, recent graduates from that programme, and indeed graduates from the programme of some decades uh, um, um, hence and, or, and past and indeed to come. And again, I suppose it's interesting for me that this year is marking the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the Chair of Anglo-Irish Literature and Drama, established by Roger McHugh in 1966. But as I say, this book is in many ways unjustly neglected. And, and while I was preparing some thoughts for this evening, uh, it occurred to me that there's a way in which I think MacDonough is a sort of male mod gone, uh, in literary terms, referred to most often as a subject uh, in a Yeats poem, uh, rather than as a writer and speaking subject in, in, in her or his right. Uh, and yet this is a book that has also had lots of fans over the years. And um, for example, Austin Clark and McDonough's mentee and his successor uh, in UCD was a big fan um, of the volume. Um, and more recently, 
uh, I'm thinking of the, of the very interesting foreword uh, given to the volume by Gerard Dole in the 1996 reprint, which maybe some of you might have. It's the more accessible uh, reprint of, of literature in Ireland. And just want to quote from Gerard Dole here, where he recalls uh, reading the volume for the first time uh, when he was a student at the recently opened University of Ulster at Coleraine in the early 1970s. And he talks about reading this collection of lectures and essays when he was a student, and I'm quoting here, to discover a comprehensive, committed voice calmly stating his position uh, on the relationship between literature and history was for this reader uh, a revelation. More recently, Colin Graham, I think, has been a really important champion uh, of Thomas McDonough's work and, and writes very eloquently about McDonough uh, in Philip O'Leary in my um, Cambridge History of Irish Literature, which Jane mentioned. Um, in his piece, uh, Graham describes McDonough as, quote, the most ideologically alert and intellectually agile critic of his generation. Um, he describes McDonough as a genuinely visionary literary critic and he also, uh, specifically talking about this work, says that the work signals a lost potential uh, in many ways. And we'll come back to some of that later. Just to finish, I suppose, with my words of, of introduction, thankfully, McDonough's writings are better known now. I want to salute the work, for example, done by our colleagues, PJ Matthew, Catherine Wilsden and Julia Brunia, who have done wonderful work in creating an online resource uh, linked to McDonough's writings and refer you to that if you haven't come across it already from revival to revolution. Obviously the crucial work uh, done in UCD to preserve his writings in archives and collections uh, and most especially the wonderful digitisation work uh, here in the National Library which really I think has been transformative. Just last night browsing for example one of the letters I came across uh, was a letter from one Eileen Nichols thanking McDonough for the gift of chocolate she had sent, he had sent to Inish Man, And, of course, she tragically drowned uh, along with Courtney Griffin, um, you know, um, uh, not long afterwards. So this evening, I think, as our opening remarks have already signalled, and as the extracts will perhaps show even more forcefully, we're really saluting Thomas McDonough uh, as an author, a scholar uh, and an educator. Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, just in terms of the archive, it's a fascinating thing to browse through for the reasons that Margaret describes. But there are also um, interesting touches of humour, particularly if you look in the section that's called Miscellaneous, um, where there is, for example, um, a letter. Um, uh, one of McDonough's great friends was a man called David Houston, uh, and a letter from David Houston basically saying, if you don't take your dratted dog away, I'm probably going to kill it. Um, but they also had, and there's also a dog licence in there as well, um, along with some very moving items as well, um, including a series of locks of hair that, um, the, of his children particularly that uh, were found when he was executed. But there, there, there's actually quite a lot of hair in that archive, actually. Um, so I'll just introduce the three passages then. Um, and I've, I, we've, we've picked these. These are really from um, McDonough's kind of scholarly writing. Um, and they kind of represent not only the range of his interest, but also some links to his nationalist concerns. They also do reference Shakespeare, all of them, uh, in one way or another. Um, but again, I think that kind of idea of lost potential is very interesting because clearly uh, in the Campion book and in the Literature in Ireland book, I mean, McDonough was shaping up to be a serious, transformative scholar. 
um, and I mean obviously achieved that to a certain extent but it's it's interesting to kind of speculate about what he might then have gone on to do and how the course of Irish criticism might have gone um, if he if he had if, if he had continued in his career so there are three passages the first one I'll just introduce them um, and, and then the, the, the Ad Astra scholars will read them the first one is an extract from McDonough's book on the poet and lyricist Thomas Campion uh, not to be confused with his Jesuit namesake although that would be quite a convenient connection um, where he outlines his ideas about the, the, the rhythm and cadence of poetry. He's very interested in what we call prosody, uh, in the weighting of syllables, in metre, in line, uh, and so on. And I think you can actually see this coming through when you hear his writings read out loud, actually. Uh, he's, he's, a, he, he's a very um, alert sense of cadence, I think. Um, and, and here he advances a, a theory in relation to what he calls song verse and speech verse. This is what impressed Dowden, uh, in fact, um, so the distinction between song verse, uh, basically lyric, iambic pentameter, and speech verse, and, and Shakespeare here is the poetic example. The second piece comes from his essay, Impressionism in Drama, which many of you will know, from 1911, published in the Irish Review, which I think, uh, again, Catherine Wilsden and PJ and uh, Julia Bruner have worked on extensively and the importance of that particular periodical. And again, here, Shakespeare provides the crucial context for thinking about seeing. And this is the thing I would say about the, the role of Shakespeare for Macdonough. Shakespeare is the starting point of a connection, always. Uh, always relating Shakespeare to something and relating something to Shakespeare. It's a kind of a back and forth movement. And then the final um, excerpt comes from the Irish Review, uh, and this reflects, I suppose, Thomas MacDonagh's uh, linguistic interests. Um, and this is a, a piece about the hybridity of English and the genesis of languages spoken in Ireland. Uh, and again, it's a kind of a tryout, I suppose, for some of the arguments made in literature in Ireland, published posthumously in 1916. So without further ado, I will hand over. The worthy use of rhyme is different from that which sets a glory to a tale of kings in a child's history book. Rhyme is, in the first place, replete with emotion, and emotion is the spring of poetry. And then, as Samuel Daniel finally said, rhyme gives wings to the poet to mount and carries him not out of his course, but, as it were, beyond his power to a far happier flight. But the poet of whom he speaks is an eminent spirit whom nature had fitted for that mystery. Not one who can, as Campion said, be enforced by rhyme to abjure his matter and extend a short conceit beyond all bounds of art. John Davidson speaks of the wasteful and ridiculous excess to which rhyme led Shakespeare in his best sonnets. The famous 73rd. That time of year thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. It is the rhyme, he thinks, that requires, or none, or few, the rhyme that gives those boughs which shake against the cold, and then those bare, ruined choirs. One needs no further comment. He goes on to contrast these lines with Macbeth's. My way of life is fallen into the sear, the yellow leaf. And says it makes one feel that there is a great gulf fixed between rhyme and blank verse. 
It is not essentially a matter of rhyme and non-rhyme, but of song verse and speech verse. Out of all great tragedy arises a feeling of emulation. Something very sorrowful is over. Lear and Cordelia are dead, but death is better than life would have been for them after all that wrong. Hamlet is dead, but the great wrong is over. He has not been defeated. Justice is triumphant somewhere. Fortinbras is king, one who is able greatly to find quarrel in a straw. In Sing's Riders to the Sea, there is this exultation arising out of finality. The old woman has all her life long been in dread of the sea. Now the sea can do no more. I'll have no call now to be crying and praying when the wind breaks from the south and you can hear the surf is in the east and the surf is in the west making a great stir with the two noises and they hitting one on the other. I'll have no call now to be going down and getting holy water in the dark nights after Samhain and I won't care what way the sea is when the other women will be keening. Michael has a clean burial in the far north by the grace of the almighty God. Bartley will have a fine coffin out of the whiteboards and a deep grave surely. What more can we want than that? No man at all can be living forever, and we must be satisfied. Compare the prose of this language with the superior prose of French. Compare its poetry with the far inferior poetry of French. It was, in a word, the English language, good for the English people, redolent of English history, even of the vagaries and absurdities of the history of the English people with practical jokes and puns and stupid grammatical blunders, smelling sweet with the aroma of some splendid verse, with golden lads and girls that come to dust, as chimney sweepers, or with deeds of daring do. This language, now a cursor of immortal pace, now a hack between the shafts of commercialism, serving Shakespeare and the stenographer, used efficiently in William Blake's lyrics and in telegrams. This differed in many ways of the ways of the linguistic difference from the language of the Gale. In it, the ideas of the Gale did not find easy expression. But I've been led on a little too far. The language that has brought to face to face with the Irish in the 18th and 19th centuries was not the language of English commerce. The Gaelic people had for English tutors the descendants of the old English settlers, in whose mouths the language was still the language of Shakespeare. The transplanted slip of a language does not develop as does the parent tree. By comparison, it rather ceases to develop. The descendants of the earliest English colonists here were found by a new Englishman of Elizabeth's time using the dregs of an old ancient Chaucer English. So in our day, we might find in the mouths an old ancient Shakespeare English. And this was the English that had to be knit into a different complication from the modern complication of the central English language. For the rest, it is not only in Ireland that the phenomenon has occurred. Analogous is the use of the English by the American booster and by the mystic who has to express in terms of sense and wit the things of God that are made known to him by no language. You'll be hearing less and less from us <laughs> as um, more uh, extracts are read. But you just want to take a couple of moments to set up the next one, uh, which comes from Literature in Ireland Studies, Irish and Anglo-Irish. 
Um, Padre Cullum, in his introduction to that volume, described it as one of the few proud books that has been written for us um, because he compliments uh, MacDonough for decrying nothing, dispraising nothing and denying nothing of what another people possesses. And in many ways, it's quite a salutary comment, I suppose, of how many of our, our works of, of criticism in, 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 in the context of Irish studies are often written in an oppos- oppositional mode, a, a sort of either-or mode. And I think for me as a reader of Macdonough, what is one of the most refreshing things is, to put it very simply, the both-and. And I think one sees that as simply as the subtitle, Studies Irish and Anglo-Irish, um, in the preface himself, uh, MacDonough says that the studies are intended to be frankly experimental. Uh, and I suppose that's something worth remembering as well. He saw this work as perspective, you know, as, as looking to the future um, uh, 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 and, and indeed a, a very short one. And he also announces that he wants to make sure that what he calls the Irish mode will be better understood and appreciated so there probably is, I suppose, an implicit opposition there uh, and a sort of sweeping away of maybe Arnold's sentimental Celt uh, and indeed, to some extent, I think, Yeats's own notion uh, of the Celtic element. Uh, for MacDonough, the crucial term is uh, an Irish mode. In terms of studies Irish and Anglo-Irish, uh, in relation to the Irish language, which he very occasionally calls Gaelic, I think it's clear MacDonough doesn't like the term, uh, but he does use it, I suppose, sparingly uh, early on in the volume where he says, my business as regards Gaelic is simple, to show the values of the old literature and the prospects of the new. Uh, and again, I think when one thinks of the, of the wonderful work that's been done by scholars uh, in relation to the Irish language revival uh, and Irish language writing of the period, I think we can see a sort of both end there as well, um, that Macdonough is equally interested, um, in fact, in many ways, it's a triangular situation. He's interested in Old Irish, um, he's interested in, um, in, in Raftery, he's interested in Carolyn, but he's also firmly convinced that there is a vibrant future uh, for Irish writing in the future. Uh, and he talks a number of times about what he calls the prospects uh, of the new. In relation to Anglo-Irish literature, he's very keen to see that as a designation that only relates to literature and language. In fact, he very firmly says that he doesn't believe in the concept of an Anglo-Irish race. And I think there's a sense throughout this volume that MacDonough is quite suspicious of racial and ethnic theories. Uh, at one stage, he makes the point that there is a debate about whether or not Keats is half Welsh, half Cornish. And, and he says, does one really care? <laughs> um, so I think for MacDonough, there isn't a sense at all that racial or, or ethnic descriptions you know, um, should explain um, a writer but he is, I think, quite firmly of the belief in, in, I suppose, what we might call more sociological terms today, uh, that there are different ways of life and ways of thought. They're his own terms, the ways of life and the ways of thought of the Irish people. But again, you notice they're plural, always. The ways of life and the ways of thought, uh, to finish the quote, have important differences from the ways of life and of thought which have found expression in other English literature. And he goes on to argue, and a crucial, obviously, argument for him is that the English language in Ireland has an individuality of its own and the rhythm of Irish speech, a distinct character. 
And it's for those reasons that he argues that Anglo-Irish literature, again in his words, is worthy of special designation. I think one of the things that's very refreshing, and this comes up a lot in, in discussions I've had with um, MA students, particularly in, in, the, in the last two years, is the sense for MacDonough that Anglo-Irish literature is a new concept. And this is something new. And, and the young Yeats writes very similarly in the 1890s, that in many ways, the radical new thing to be guarded and fostered is Irish uh, writing um, in English. But MacDonough is always interested in continuity. So he makes the point that the new English speakers um, in Ireland very often had fathers and grandfathers who speak only Irish. And, but for MacDonough, the key issue is that those people now speak English and, in fact, speak it very well uh, and speak it distinctively. As I mentioned, he himself is aware um, that the term Anglo-Irish can be misleading and awkward, but I think for him, there's a sense all the time that the hyphenation is the energy. You know, that the, that the, the, again, in, I suppose, what more recent terms we would talk about as hybridity. But as Danielle has shown so well at, at the beginning, for MacDonough, it's never a question of refusing one inheritance to, to employ another. And so this book, for example, refers to Blake, to Browning, to Whitman, and to Romanian folk songs, to Bengal, to other literatures in Western Europe. Um, a key, I think, hero, as we'll hear, uh, for, um, for MacDonough is Mangan, uh, including his translations from Persian and Arabic, uh, and finally, in the extract that we heard just before I spoke, the importance of translation, especially grateful to Richard Costa's work in relation to MacDonough for pointing me in that regard. Because for MacDonough, the key aspect of translation is its source of, of vitality uh, and its enabling of a tradition to change. The literature of a race goes at first to the pales of those who have previously drawn from the well of life of its parent race. Chaucer is full of translations from the work of his own people, the Normans, and from writers, among other peoples, from whom his people derived culture. Elizabethan literature is full of translations and adaptations from older literatures, in consonance with the new national life of England, not from the two Western or the two Eastern literatures. Shakespeare stole all his plots and translated many of his sonnets and songs. Later, poets derived from Chaucer, from Shakespeare and his contemporaries, from Milton. With the exception of the returned refugees to the court of Louis XIV, they no longer, to any great extent, find their originals abroad. Our characteristic ways of thought and ways of life in Ireland have been expressed in Irish. Other ways, which we have in common with other peoples, have been expressed in other languages. Mangan and Porrick Colum go to Arabic as well as to Irish for their originals. All of us find in Irish, rather than in English, a satisfying understanding of certain ways of ours and the best expression of certain of our emotions. So we are expressing ourselves in translating from the Irish. When we translate from the French, we express Ronsard, say, a man of a different climate at least, and of a different complexity of civilization. A man who warns his lady that her maid's long hence of a drowsy evening carding wool will start at the name of the poet who sings her praises now, warns her that she will regret her proud disdain while he, a pale phantom, will haunt the myrtle shades. This is a different world, even in the version of Mr Yeats, from that of Raftery, the poet full of hope and of love, playing music to empty pockets from the deck of, of Patrick Lynch's boat, sailing from the county, the county of Mayo. 
different from Cashel of Munster, different from the Hill of Hoth, clear Ben above a sea of gulls, different the whole distance between comfort and the outlawry of our kith, from the world of that untranslatable Amen on Cunnock, which yet we would all translate. The national rose of Ireland is on Roisin Dove, the little black rose, not the tender red flower to be plucked with the joys of life. At present, a large amount of translation is natural. Later, when we have expressed again in English all the emotions and experiences expressed already in Irish, this literature will go forward, free from translation. Through the English language has come a freshening breath from without. With the Gaelic Renaissance has come a new stirring of national consciousness. These two have been the great influences in all new literatures. At that I can leave it, at that freshening and at that stirring of it. It is well for us that our workers are poets and our poets workers. The more a man gives his life to poetry, said Francis Thompson, the less poetry he writes. And it is well too that here still that cause which is identified without underthought of commerce, with the cause of God and right and freedom, the cause which has been the great theme of our poetry, may any day call the poets to give their lives in the old service. We're going to continue with the theme of translation and poetry, although one of the things that strikes me about that extract is actually McDonough's use of we, uh, that that idea of a kind of a shared audience and, and, and who his audience is for that book, um, which is, I think is kind of an interesting question. Um, a very substantial uh, proportion of McDonough's uh, ri- um, literary output uh, is poetic, uh, and again, he cites this in his, uh, his professorship application. And it's heavily influenced, I think, his output by his interests in prosody, in lyric, in the Elizabethans, but also um, influenced quite clearly by the different phases in his own formation as a, think- in a, in, as a thinker. Um, and in line with the, the ideas from uh, Literature and Ireland that we've just heard, um, I've focused on translations, the, the poems I've chosen are translations from the Irish, and not least because I think he writes best when he does this, um, but an awful lot of his, tra- of his poems are also translations from Catullus, from other Latin writers, uh, and from French particularly. Ronsard is a, is a very important figure for him, um, perhaps surprisingly. Um, but these all have an economy um, of, and, and compression not always found in his original writings and he's here heavily indebted to song these are, these are, these are songs as well as poems um, so he, he entitles them two songs from the Irish and they're actually reproduced in literature in Ireland where he talks uh, in, in very similar terms again he says when, I, when Irish poets uh, write the new epics of this nation and the new poetic drama of the coming years we shall no doubt have plenty of these treatments of serious subjects. So we'll we'll just listen to a couple of the poems now. Tis a pity I'm not in England, or with one from Erin thither bound, out in the midst of the ocean, where the thousands of ships are drowned. From wave to wave of the ocean, to be guided on with the wind and the rain. And, oh, King, that thou mightst guide me back to my love again. The stars stand up in the air. The sun and the moon are gone. The strand of its waters is bare and her sway is swept from the swan. The cuckoo is calling all day, hid in the branches above, how my storeen is fled far away. Tis my grief that I give her my love. Three things through love I see, sorrow and sin and death, 
and my mind reminding me that this doom I breathe with my breath. But sweeter than violin or lute is my love, and she left me behind. I wish that all music were mute and I to my beauty were blind. She's more shapely than swan by the strand. She's more radiant than grass after dew. She's more fair than the stars where they stand. Tis my grief that her ever I knew. Is true a Sassana, Augustina Warner, Erin Lum, Noama, Ilorna Farriga, and all to guide her in the wheel to long. On Gwe, Augustin Aaron, Vemahiola, O Hanga Town, Is a re, Gashola to Misha, in San Oite of Wilmagraw in a lee. The next extract uh, is from uh, Thomas MacDonagh's play, When the Dawn Is Come. Just very briefly to give some background to that, it was first uh, produced uh, by the Abbey uh, in October 1908, subtitled A Tragedy in Three Acts, uh, and very grateful to our readers this evening for their insights into the play. Uh, where uh, commenting on the play, they've talked about its, its merging uh, of Shakespearean drama, the history plays, uh, as well as the tragic soliloquies, uh, with the tenets of classical drama. The play is set 50 years hence in Ireland in a time of insurrection, uh, and lots of prophetic details there. There are seven captains of an Irish insurgent army, uh, who can't agree on leadership. <laughs> uh, one item of contention is whether or not women uh, should become members of the Council of Ireland. I, I'm pleased to say that the hero of the piece, Turlock McKeeran, um, believes they should be. Um, it's decided that the, the, the lot of leadership uh, should circulate uh, week by week among the seven captains. And as we'll hear, it falls first uh, to Turlock McKiernan, uh, to the display of his rival, uh, the Iago-like Raymond O'Sullivan. One or two details about, about the first nights. It, it, it ran for three nights in the Abbey with the Saturday matinee. Um, and the performers, and thanks to the wonderful um, uh, Abbey Digital Records, uh, we can find out the, the cast. Uh, and it's a sort of who's who, really, of Abbey players. Um, for example, Turlock McKiernan, uh, the man of brain, according to the Freeman's Journal, uh, was played by J.M. Kerrigan, uh, the famous Abbey player, who in fact was particularly known um, for his role of Sean Kyo in Playboy, uh, as well indeed as his future film career uh, in a number of John Ford films, many of you will know. And Eamon O'Sullivan, the man of action, is played by Arthur Sinclair. Um, also in the cast was Fred O'Donovan who was much acclaimed for his Christy Mahan in the 1911 US tour of Playboy. And the female lead, uh, Isha MacOscar, was played by one Sarah uh, Algood, who of course had begun her career in Anine the Heron, along with her sister Molly, uh, and indeed later would herself have a film career, including in the early Hitchcock. Um, I should say, to be fair, that Joseph Holloway, the inveterate theatre gore, uh, described the, the play as dull and very talky. <laughs> I think we disagree, but we are actually just featuring a short extract. Um, but I also like the review from the Irish um, Independent, which commented on the big audience and the favourable reception um, um, that, that greeted the play. Uh, and the audience insisted that the young author, who was then just 30, should appear before them. Uh, and the reviewer says, the author looked nervous and bashful 
went on the stage and bowed. He looked just the kind of young man who would write this play. Many of us, though, felt sorry that the youthful, clever author didn't say a few words explaining what it was exactly his play was meant to convey. (laughs) Because, to tell the truth, it was a bit difficult to follow. (laughs) Now, with the advantage of Internet Archive and being able to download a, a, a PDF myself, It's a fascinating play, I think, uh, for many reasons, not least because its stage is really quite radical uh, and unsettling um, ideas about the future decisions that would await uh, an Irish insurgent army. Before we part now, I wish to take the occasion to speak in a personal matter which concerns the General and me. No, Raymond, no. That is over. We all work together now. For that, it is better that I speak. I voted against the election of Thurlock McKeeran among the seven. He said then that he believed me sincere in doing so. And I was. He has worked more than we others. He has thought of plans and we have adopted them. Father John has called him the brain of our army and he has thought for us all. But he is a poet, always, and changes in moods and is at times hard to understand. And he sees too many sides to every question. He thinks the very enemy's actions, all cruelties and tyrannies, can be defended in justice from their point of view. Turlock is here. He is a philosopher, more than a simple fighter for a single cause. In the old days, before we brought together armed forces, I heard him speak to gatherings of the people. In midst of his appeal for patriotism, a voice, a look in the crowd, made him doubt and pause. He was not sure. That was my thought and my objection to the choice of him. Well, why should I speak thus now? He is our general now. Only because it is my trust, my more than trust, that these things will hinder nothing if they do not help his signal merit. It is not my custom thus to explain with an apology. I would not speak my reason to the assembly. They would have, Turlock. Scarce a voice with mine said no. And when they trust, it is well they trust in full. It is well I too trust in full. Were I not now to speak my trust to you, you would not know it in me. For this I speak. And I speak too because even this away... I deem it necessary for me who have voted against him always to pledge obedience and the aid of my counsel to him and my willing fellowship. Captain, my absence hence and then my presence now have served me graciously. By accident of entering now in the midst of your good speech, by accident of not breaking in on your good speech, I have surprised a kindness all the more rich for its thought of secret trust. For your words, though to me there was no need, I thank you. I thank you from all my heart. To say any more would be too much vanity. Comrades of Council, I am your general for this week. I know my duties and my trust to you and to our army. I must not keep you any longer. You captains will go now to your duties in the camp. You councillors have your duties too. I will stay here, 
busy with the plans I must submit to you in an hour. The councillor Eta will have the issue of the lot announced in form. The captain Art O'Connell will tell you all. So fate has been with me still. Am I too hasty in these quick counsels? But this morning I thought myself a Greek plan to secure for myself command some time, and now I am general. Busy with my plans, have I said. No need. My plans are perfect long, since yesterday the new ones. Yet they depend upon the arrival of the north and Alexander. I must win him, and with him two weeks' power. And third, the priest, three weeks. There's time to plan and carry out my plans. So I think the, the extract, um, to me anyway, I mean, there are clear, not echoes exactly, but kind of parallel, certainly. I mean, you know, um, McDonough is clearly very familiar, for example, Shakespeare's Roman plays, um, I think, in terms of that kind of military strategizing, uh, the self-deception, the stepping aside for the soliloquy and so on and so forth. Um, and I think it's a really interesting kind of coming together of a series of concerns, some that look back and some that look forward. So we're going to just move now into the very kind of final phase. Um, Margaret and I are both going to just say a few words about why, why we think McDonough matters and, and why he's important. Um, and I'm, I'm minded to kind of go back to the, the little biographical summary I gave, which was, uh, which was derived uh, very much from the Dictionary of Irish Biography. And the interesting thing about the entry in the Dictionary of Irish Biography uh, is that the, uh, the writer of that entry concludes uh, that McDonough's real important legacy is literary. Uh, it isn't military. Um, and actually he's rather critical of uh, McDonough as a, as a military leader, says he's indecisive and changes his mind too often, which perhaps is reflected there as well. Um, and, and for me, I think that's the, 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 the critical thing. Um, I'm very interested, particularly again, uh, in the kinds of uh, modes of thinking uh, that are foundational uh, to the teaching of languages and literatures in UCD. And I, I would hope that some of those um, ideas and aspirations um, are, are still with us. And so for me, McDonough is a kind of a really important kind of touchstone, a kind of iconic figure in some ways, as somebody who is, a, is able to cross all of these devices. He's an extraordinarily talented man, um, I think, in terms of all of the different things that he's able to do. But also, I kind of like him, you know? I kind of read through the archive and I liked him. Um, I, I wasn't sure that he would like me, I'm sure he wouldn't, um, but I felt that, he, that there was a, a compassion in him, a kind of a sympathy for the position of others, um, and, uh, and probably most importantly, a kind of a real academic integrity, a respect for others' intellectual efforts. And you can see this in a lot of his very collaborative work. Um, there's a few things in the archive, again, from the early days of UCD, where there were um, summer, uh, summer uh, lectures, uh, evening lectures, a summer school uh, with uh, uh, contributions from um, academics in English, in uh, Old Irish, in archaeology, uh, and so on, um, but also in literature. And the other thing I just finally want to say about Madonna, which I think is important, is that Madonna, um, we've heard mention of Blake, um, 
Donovan, um, who was uh, McDonough's great mentor, um, uh, Donovan was renowned for his lectures on romanticism and on the romantic poets, and Kate O'Brien actually references this. She was, she was lectured by um, Donovan. And it strikes me that an awful lot of what McDonough is thinking about is, is framed and shaped by romanticism. Um, it, it's the place where he sees... Um, poetics and politics kind of coming together with revolutionary potential. And I suppose the thing that's always striking about this is that the, the romantics for McDonough and his generation are like modernists for us, in a way. Um, they, they, were, they were radical, they broke the mould, and he kind of reads them quite frequently, I think, against these earlier Elizabethans. And, and, and there's something that appeals to his quite orderly, disciplined mind about you know, prosody and metre and order, um, but he's much more interested in breaking the mould um, than recreating it, I think. Uh, the joys of a conversation is the ideas it gives and jotting things down myself. And in fact, I, I looked back in the, the introduction um, uh, by Cullum, which uh, in terms of something that Danielle said really resonated, where he said, uh, Thomas McDonough surely loved the music of the thing that happened, <laughs> playing on the, the Fionn and O'Sheen idea there. Um, I found the Marina Carr um, dramatisation of MacDonough, which I think many people in this room saw, the signatories, very powerful, um, not least because of the reminder of the, of the family man mm. and mindful of family members in the audience that I think, you know, when one thinks about the might have been, obviously one particularly wants to honour the personal and f- familial dimensions of that. Um, some of us spend time thinking of what Ireland would have been like if James Connolly had lived. <laughs> I spend some time thinking about that. But I also do spend time thinking about what our discipline might have been like um, if Thomas Donner had lived. Um, and again, I suppose just to finish, I want to mention one or two of his comments that I think showed, again, his vitality and his... his um, his, his, what would you say, determination to go against the grain. For example, he became increasingly critical of the Gaelic League, uh, and particularly critical uh, of the League because he felt it wasn't fostering uh, a growth of literature in Irish where it really should, and that was, as far as MacDonough was concerned, amongst the young people in the Gaeltacht. And he felt that the League was spending too much time with what he kind of quite uh, sardonically described as people who have lost their Gaelic edge in the pale. <laughs> there are many of us. And, but he felt that the, the League should be much more proactively working with a young generation um, in the Gaeltacht. And it's that sense, I think, that we've heard in a number of the extracts already of continual change, transplanting, stirrings and the new growth because towards the end of his work, um, he makes the point uh, that, um, you know, having talked a lot in, 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 in this work about English, he makes the point, uh, he says, we have now begun to turn back to the old language, not old to us. Uh, and in the closing pages, he begins to speculate about what happens when there has been the sort of break um, in the Irish language, but what happens when a new generation begins to discover Irish for itself as a new thing. So in the, in the very way that earlier in the volume, he talks about people whose forefathers uh, and foremothers um, um, spoke Irish, now speak English. He begins to, to think about people um, whose parents wouldn't have had Irish, but who begin to claim and find Irish for themselves. And he says, the future poets of the country will probably be the sons and daughters of a generation that learned Irish as a strange tongue. The words and phrases of Irish will have a new wonder for them. 
the figures of speech will have all their first poetry. So that process of cultural change um, continues to what has been and may yet um, be. Uh, having given out a bit about making Macdonough synonymous um, with the Yeats poem, I actually do want to quote Yeats again at the end. Uh, and this is actually a short testimonial um, that Yeats wrote on behalf of Macdonough, when in this case he was applying for a job, I think, in Galway. <laughs> uh, and he described him as having enthusiasm and character and an original mind. He would create a taste for reading the best literature, and that is the one thing that matters. Uh, and I think for those of us who are teachers of literature, isn't it absolutely wonderful to create a taste for reading the best literature, uh, and that is the one thing that matters. But we're going to give uh, Macdonough's own writings um, the final word, uh, and in particular, his poem uh, of a poet patriot. His songs were a little phrase of eternal song, drowned in the harping of lays, more loud and long. His deed was a single word, called out alone, in a night when no echo stirred, to laughter or moan. But his songs new souls shall thrill, the loud harps dumb, and his deed the echoes fill, when the dawn is come. <laughs>